for April 23rd. It's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 512, Man on Bambi Violence. Welcome to Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. The overthinkers are like your smart, funny, iron friends from the internet. And uh, we're never happier than when we're hanging out together talking about the things that we enjoy. And uh, today, uh, a special treat, we're going to do something that we have have started doing over the past couple months and go back to a classic work of cinema rather than uh, something that just came out recently. Uh, You may have noticed that we released on the website recently an overview of the movie Iron Man uh, in preparation for the Marvel Extra Extravaganza that's uh, that's coming um, very very soon with uh, the first of Infinity War movie, and uh, as we were doing that, Pete, Mark, and I kind of looked at each other virtually through Skype and said, "Hey, doesn't that first Iron Man suit look a lot like the Iron Giant?" And then we thought. You know, it's been a while. We should watch The Iron Giant and do an episode on it. So that's what we got for you, an Overthinking It podcast on The Iron Giant. I'm Matt. I am here with my good friends, Pete. Hey, Matt. And Mark. Hey, and just to add just a little bit of context, uh, we recently saw Ready Player One, and it's a whole lot of Iron Giant in that movie. Oh, it was two. Yeah, it was two. It was two. It was uh, uh, determined by two things. It seems like the whole universe has been uh, uh, one giant instance of synchronicity pointing to pointing to this episode that you are listening to right now. So let's, uh, let's, just, uh, let's just dive in um, in this Vin Diesel vehicle. Uh, <laughs> Vin Diesel is a vehicle. As a, after, <laughs> yeah, after, I mean, it's, uh, it's not American muscle, but it is muscle for sure. And uh, he, the, the realization that the Iron Giant comes to at the end of this, this movie that we're going to try to talk about without just weeping copiously, without just breaking down, down altogether and, and crying for 10 minutes is uh, uh, he says he, he remembers Hogarth saying to him, you are who you choose to be. So I put that to you all as a question. Uh, Pete, are you who you choose to be? <laughs> Not entirely, I would say. I'd say that I do a lot of the choosing, but I think other people make choices, too, that affect who I am and my experience. And then there are kind of autonomic reactions or automatic reactions or various sorts of behaviors I don't necessarily control through conscious choice that would encompass, partially encompass that which one might define as what I am, right? So, and I think the Iron Giant illustrates this too, in that there are certain things about yourself that you can control. There are certain sorts of things about yourself that need to be controlled in sort of the second or third order by not controlling yourself, but by controlling the circumstances, if you can. And then there are those things that are kind of impressed upon you by other people, which you may not necessarily be able to control. And then that's why we have socialization and other such wonderfully related ideas as art and politics, <laughs> which is the idea of to what extent do other people in their interactions with me define who I am, I would say. So I would sort of break it into those positive as those sort of three things that we if we're all iron giants, then partially we are the alien programming that was put into us that we've since forgotten due to our head trauma. 
partially we're the choices that we make for ourselves based on our own, you know, soul as the movie posits and, and the sort of conscious consciousness that's associated with it. And then partially we're defined in opposition to the other people or in cooperation with the other people that we encounter along the way. I don't know, Mark, what do you, how would you frame it? Are you who you choose to be? I framed this question more in the terms of uh, a statement, a commandment, if you will, that was spoken by another little boy to another giant robot, which is no fate, but what we make for ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> and I have also, I thought a lot about that. And I'm, I'm, of course, referring to Terminator 2. Uh, well, Terminator and Terminator 2, but mostly Terminator 2, uh, which is heavily, which is a major influence on this movie, I think, which we'll talk about later. I thought a lot about that statement. I thought a lot about Terminator 2. thought a lot about fate versus free will. In the context of Terminator, I think I've come down on it. It's a load of hogwash, really, <laughs> at the end of the day, uh, for better and for worse. Uh, and... In my life as well, I can relate a lot to the Iron Giant who uh, was brought to his uh, very foreign place of Maine, the United States, from a place very, very far away. Um, I relate to that a lot because, of course, my parents were born in Korea and then came to the United States. And so, I, you know, um, it's not quite the same. Uh, in Korea is not quite the same as outer space, but sometimes it feels like it um, in terms of the cultural alienation that I felt growing up as a Korean person, as a, a as a person of color in Georgia and then Alabama. Oh, my God. Think about that. Right. Uh, uh, in the 80s and 90s. Um, and ever since then, I'm kind of searching for a place that uh, I, I feel like I belong to where I can then like self-actualize on my own terms rather than uh, trying to reconcile my past and the cultural alienation uh, that 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 for my early years and uh, a lot of sort of the confusion of my youth and adolescence. So um, the answer to that question is uh, a lot of no, but a little bit of yes. It's interesting the two ideas of where we go to when we're considering what we are in this discursive sense, wherein you're talking about. The Terminator idea is is people are sort of defined by what happens to them and what they achieve. So John Connor is defined as the leader of the resistance who defeats the machines in the post-apocalypse, and that's who he is. Uh, and anything else about him, you know, would be like, OK, who's John Connor? You wouldn't be like, he's a video game enthusiast who, who has a floopy haircut. <laughs> right. Like you wouldn't say that. You wouldn't say, who is John Connor? He's kind of a kid with an attitude problem. We know John Connor is defined by what John Connor does in the grand balance of things. And it's a heroic way of defining people. And the Iron Giant, it's interesting to think that it's actually doing both in that the Iron Giant is who he chooses to be in the sense of he has the result that he chooses to have in the grand progression of collectively experienced events. Uh, and because he wants to be Superman. And so he acts as Superman, uh, wherein the idea of, well, who you are in the experience of yourself, you are as a being that is concerned with the matter of being in an existential sense. He is what meaning he imparts unto his own life. But that's a different frame of reference from the idea of you are what they would write about you in the history books. Hmm. So it's interesting that we attack it from two very different angles up front. I mean, Matt, are you who you choose to be? Well, I mean, I, we all knew, uh, we all knew uh, a priest in uh, college. His name was Bob uh, Boulogne and he loved charts. He loved matrices. He loved like schematic views of things. And he had a two by two matrix of identity. Right. So uh, so suppose suppose that we divide identity into these four quadrants. Right. Um, based on what you know and what you don't know about yourself and about what I know and what I don't know about you. 
All right? Go with me here. There's the you that you know and I know. That's your public, your public persona. We both acknowledge it to be true. Right? There's the you that you know that I don't know. Your private thoughts, your, your innermost self, maybe family life, if we're just yeah. social acquaintances, something like that. There's the you that I know that you don't know, which is your blind spots and, uh, and your sort of um, things that you're, you're unaware of for, for whatever reason that other people around you can see plain as the nose on your face, right? And then a fourth, uh, a fourth area, and, and you know, uh, Bob was a priest, and so there was this uh, spiritual element to it, which was the you that you don't know and that I don't know, which is mystery, Right now, I think when you say you are who you choose to be, we're actually in two different quadrants of that two by two matrix at the same time. Right. Because the you choose to be happens in your private self. But the you are happens uh, across diagonally across in the part of you that you may not see, but that I see. Right. Because that you may choose to be something and you may believe that you are that thing. But that has to be sort of ratified. Right by someone else. So I think I think there's sort of some some even even before we get into some of the directions that you want that that you both want to go in at the level of parsing the statement. Uh it's not clear that it's not clear that the you in either clause of that sentence in the in the dependent and the independent clause are the same you. Right? Whoa. You know? Whoa, am I blowing your mind? So to put this in the context of the movie, (laughs) let's take the event of the Iron Giant walking up to the power station and eating the tower that holds up the power lines for the power station and then getting shocked by the electricity. So in the first quadrant, the quadrant of what we can both see, we know that the Iron Giant is a giant robot, that the Iron Giant eats metal. That the Iron Giant is is very durable but not totally invincible, and that the Iron Giant is able to sort of perceive things and see things and want them and take action towards doing them, and that the metal is kind of a big part of the Iron Giant's physiology. Yep. And then in terms of the part that the Iron Giant sees that we don't see, is it's it's sort of it's has this sort of childlike hunger impulse. It 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 has this desire to eat the tower that is not rooted in malice or in a uh, in a desire for destruction, but is instead rooted in, in kind of a seeking out of food. Right. That and presumably a feeling that this is normal. The Iron Giant does not approach the power station at, with trepidation. The Iron Giant is oh look it's something familiar. It seems like what the attitude is about the Iron Giant yeah. approaching. The oh power boy, station. lunchtime. Yeah, exactly. Oh, look, it's somebody left a sandwich for me. Great. And then the part of it that I see, you know, or the outsiders or that Hogarth that they, Hogarth sees, that, Hogarth the Iron, sees that, the Iron, that the Iron Giant doesn't see is the whole kind of kaiju big battle dimension. Right. Which is that the Iron Giant is like a giant robot, which ha- has vast destructive capacity and is destroying this piece of infrastructure that's important to the people in the town. And his the danger that he represents and, and the aggressiveness that he's capable of and, and his struggle with the power station which is the perspective that Hogarth has of the giant, but which the giant can't perceive about himself. And then the mystery is, well, where is the giant actually from? Right? Who made the giant? Right. How does the giant fit into the power dynamics between the United States and Russia? Like, you don't know. Well, I yeah. don't know. I mean, so, Pete, yeah. I, I mean, I have a question. Does the giant have a purpose? <laughs> well, the, I think the people – that's a really good question. So when you asked me that question on a podcast, my response to it was uh, a life is too big of a thing for a, for a single purpose. More or less, right? yeah. That, that, 
Yeah, that was my that was my cop out because it's important to cop out on questions like that, <laughs> or else you end up in, in wearing strange shirts and giving all your money to specific yeah, or or to uh, like or, or, or uh, right or or like <laughs> or founding America. But okay, <laughs> I don't think the founders of America saw founding America as the sole purpose of their lives. Oh my, are I you are we, you ki- are you kidding me? Those 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 Puritans they were they were all about their suit. But uh, but anyway, we digress. I think America could be defined as a country that was founded by people who were doing other things while they were doing it. <laughs> I think that's probably not the worst way of defining the United States Maybe of America. Maybe that's why we have such a problem with multitasking. Because right? <laughs> it's like, oh, look, I'm going to India. Whoops. <laughs> I, like, uh, well, that's how it in the beginning. Uh, and that's, of course, all of all of the Americas has that sort of issue where it's sort of the accidental transformation of the whole world. But at any rate, um, yeah. And so, so the uh, Iron Giant, what, is uh, – so you're so remind me you were talking about well I, I mean I think there's a thing I mean there's a thing and and we might be jumping ahead here of like you know the the Iron Giant was presumably created by some agency that had a point in creating the Iron right. Giant right and that we don't know we don't know the point we don't know the origin we don't know the agency uh, that created the the Iron Giant I mean that's the point that right that's the point that you're trying to make. Yeah, we can infer, especially from the end of the movie, where the Iron Giant grows giant tentacles that shoot lasers, and what that tends to mean to us. We could suppose, maybe infer is the wrong word, but we could posit that the Iron Giant's original, that the Iron Giant is like Goku from Dragon Ball, in that he was created to destroy things, but because he hit his head, he forgot what he was created to do. In mm-hmm. fact, it could, it could be exactly like Goku, where, go, you know, in Dragon Ball, uh, it's revealed, you know, 10 years in the series or whatever, that the main character was sent to Earth from another planet like Superman, but suffered a head injury and forgot that he was supposed to destroy the planet or at least kill everyone on the planet to prepare it for colonization and looting for resources. And so decided to defend the planet instead because he had the freedom to choose what he wanted to do with himself. So you could posit, OK, maybe maybe the purpose of the people who created the Iron Giant for him as a means was as some sort of weapon of conquest or some sort of sentinel. Maybe he's supposed to hunt down Professor X and Magneto on the planet that he's from. But does that seem to sufficiently comprise the Iron Giant's existence, either from Mark's standpoint, which is what does the Iron Giant end up doing in the collectively understood course of history, or in the way that I was positing it, in terms of what is the Iron Giant's experience of who he is? And what, how does he see himself in the context of what he does? Yeah. Uh, and in, in both of those cases, the answer is it's, it's not adequate, that, that the, the creator doesn't get to dictate the created. And I guess in that sense, it's funny because this is a movie about a parentage, a parent, parental generation in which everybody has very clear roles, but the kids don't have very clear roles. And the kids are trying to figure out what their roles are in the context of living around the parents and in rebellion against the parents. And the Iron Giant is sort of doing the same thing because he was created for some sort of reason that he was not privy to. Yeah. So, uh, and, so what, you're yeah. Say, what you're saying, Pete, is that we shouldn't call him the Iron Giant. We should call him the Iron Giant's monster. Right. Yeah. <laughs> sure. That's just more more. Well, OK, so there, but there's this process of sort of coming to self-knowledge, right? Like one of the things that the that the metal amnesia does to the Iron Giant. And, and by the way, we're just like Iron Giant, Iron Giant, Iron Giant, Iron Giant, Iron Giant over and over and over. So I'm just going to say IG. Uh, you don't have to adopt that. But uh, yeah, I, did you lie? <laughs> <laughs> um, do that. Do that. <laughs> who that? 
who that um that uh you know that ig is uh it sort of conveniently enough gives him an arc that's kind of like a child coming to consciousness right so that he can kind of he can sort of come come of age uh and and i think i i think there's more to say about that um about that later, but that's, let's pivot a little bit, Pete, to the point that, that you were, you were trying to make, right? Like, I think that, that among the many influences, uh, that this film has, and apart from the more sci-fi type ones, I think you have to deal with this as a, you know, an animated film about a child, uh, sort of being thrust into a quest or something like that, or having a, a sort of extraordinary thing happen and, and coming to cope with it. Right. Um, has to be thought of in relation to a lot of Disney movies. And there were sort of clear, there were sort of clear relations to me. Like it's the, it, he, when Hogarth is sort of skipping through the town at the beginning of the, the movie, it's almost like the bonjour song from, uh, from Beauty and the Beast, you know? And, uh, um, even to almost melodically, right? Like, but just the tone of the music and the kind of the function, um, you know, the function that it serves, right? Like, he's sort of contained in this world. Uh, it's a small town. He has this sort of yearning to get out, which is kind of expressed in his case through not a communion with books, but through a communion with nature, like squirrels, mischief, kind of, you know, uh, crawling up the guy's, you know, crawling up the guy's pants, uh, the, who turns out to be the, like, the good father figure. Um, except in this, I mean, in this film, it's a, uh, it's an absent father, not an absent mother, right? That, uh, you know, that is the psychic wound, the sort of or metaphorical psychic wound that a lot of the a lot of the film is spent um, contesting and adjudicating uh, that. And, and that is an I mean, that's an interesting sort of response to uh, the Disney movie. I don't know. Either of you thoughts on on this as a kind of fairy tale or on as a, a sort of the, the uh, narratological questions that it raises? Well, it's I think it's important to note that this was the brainchild of Brad Bird. Right. Mm-hmm. Just just in terms of its provenance. So this is Brad Bird's first movie that he got to be in charge of. Uh, he would go on to make such movies as Ratatouille, The Incredibles, the upcoming Incredibles 2, uh, Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol for some reason. <laughs> and uh, But he was a Disney animator. So, you know, he had worked with... The, on the Fox and the Hound, he had worked with the the old guard at Disney, an uh, animation uh, consultant on The Simpsons as well. So this is somebody who comes out of the Disney posse, who is going out with Warner Brothers to make his own kind of project and brings along with him a lot of the influences that he took along the way. So, I mean, I, I think and this is just sort of reading up on him in various readily available Wikipedia and related sites online. His mentor was the guy who animated Bambi. And so the the fact yeah, that they Bambi have that they, they movie, have that yeah they have that real apostolic succession in in Disney that goes back to like it's called like the seven old men or something maybe that's not the the yeah, wrong the number. nine old men the yeah, nine exactly. old the nine old men sorry yeah. I was confusing them with uh, with the seven short men in Snow White <laughs> right right so Milt Call is one of the nine old men and Brad Bird was mentored by Milt Call and then Brad Bird has been you know with Disney and Pixar and Warner Brothers you know since. Uh, although what he I guess he announced the monorail in Jurassic World. That's kind of silly. Why would he do that? <laughs> but uh, but the, the point being that, yes, this has a dir- but so it has a very direct linear relationship to Disney, even though it wasn't made 
within the scope of Disney and is, in fact, made when Warner Brothers because Warner Brothers owns the rights to the book or something like that going back a long time. Uh, the book, of course, not that much like the movie, I don't think. But uh, he wrote, he did a story treatment for it. That somebody else wrote the script. And you kind of get the sense that the parts of the movie that are big story beats are the ones that Brad Bird came up with. And the stuff that are kind of like floating around like, hey, let's talk about nonsense and squirrels in the diner is the stuff that the screenwriter wrote and added to it. I don't know. I mean, Mark, there's other influences, too. There's Disney. There's got to be some Spielberg in here. Right. Oh, I mean, yeah, there's a big E.T. thing going on, right, mm-hmm. where, um, you know, again, a visitor from an outer planet comes, um, a child who is missing a parent um, adopts this uh, pet slash sibling um, who's filling this void, uh, but in a different way, um, educates this new stranger in the ways of humanity. Um, the stranger also, by the way, has a moment by um, himself where he watches TV and learns more about humanity, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, there's, yeah, there's there's a ton, ton of ET influence on this. Um, the the meta pop culture pieces as well, which I think we'll we'll, we'll reserve for later on in, in the show, um, uh, plays a lot into this. Um, one thing I want to just uh, uh, put out there as well uh, when we're talking about sort of the void that's that that's being filled here is that uh, when I was watching this movie originally, I thought, oh, there are not one, not two, but three uh, sort of father figures in this movie and the iron giant being one of them. The other two, of course, being Dean, the, um, uh, the junk artist guy. And then the, uh, the, the federal agent as well, being the, the, being the villain, the bad father figure. Um, as we talk about this more, it's clear that the iron giant is more of the sort of the ET pet sibling kind of thing going on, uh, rather than a father figure. Um, but I still feel there's a little bit of that going on uh, again, just because there's that big void, that he needs to fill uh, based on the, uh, on the absence of the father, um, and it's just sort of the the overall uh, the protective nature the that the fact that the Iron Giant Iron Giant protects Cradles um, Hogarth and saves his life at the end. Um, do you guys see still the father figure thing going on, or is it mostly overridden by the other elements? I mean, I you know I've I had an opinion on this, which is that I, f- I feel like the 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 emotional story of the film is about sort of restoring the nuclear family, uh, restoring the right nuclear family, and the risk is that the wrong nuclear family will be restored, right? And the wrong nuclear family would be with uh, Shooter McGavin. Uh, no, not Shooter McGavin. <laughs> <laughs> what's the name of the uh, What's the name of the actor who uh, plays uh, Mansley, right? Something Mansley is the name of the character. Kent Mansley. Yeah, is that Voiced right? By Chris, Christopher McDonald, right? right? Is yeah. the actor. Yeah, um, and Mansley. <laughs> right, exactly. Mansley. You know, and then the other, uh, the other guy is Dean McCoppin. You know, <laughs> which is, uh, which is uh, maybe related to McLovin, though I think they are from different different clans uh, ancestrally. Um, Right. Like and and the the Iron Giant doesn't really, you know, IG isn't really a, a factor in that in that uh, contest. Right. Like who's who um, the the problem with Kent is that he sort of he uh, intrudes uninvited into the house. You know, he's uh, he surveils Hogarth. um 
he like objectifies the mother like it's pretty you know it's pretty quick because after all it seems like it's a it's a film um actually i have imdb open in front of me i should see uh what it's rated it's rated uh oh, i can't see on it was the... rated a lot it was it had an r rating until they edited out the iron iron giants big old dong <laughs> Uh, prior to that, it was definitely uh, an R and NC seventeen. I believe no, it's probably a PG or a PG, right? Hogarth. <laughs> um, the the uh, yeah, it's a PG, right? So so it's a kid. You can't have the overt sexual stuff, but it's like the you know he's eyeing mom's boobs uh, in in an early scene, and and you know so that's right. And then the other the other the good father is generative, right? He's creative, and the sort of the squirrel. And Hogarth comes out of his pants, right? Because the squirrel, who is sort of an av- <laughs> who is sort of an avatar of Hogarth, like you know, crawls up his pant leg, and then he like unzips his fly, and and out comes uh, out out shoots the squirrel, um, and uh, and that is you know, in a way, one sort of symbolic birth that that Hogarth has in the movie. I th- I would call the Iron Giant more a more a sort of mirror figure for Hogarth sort of figuring out who he is right like more of a you know kind of kind of coming to coming to understand that he's not wild like the squirrel that he belongs in in society right that he uh is part of a network of um relationships and obligations that is worth sacrificing yourself yeah. for and and to me like they they kind of have the two of them have kind of a parallel trajectory even though like a, a little bit the the dichotomy is that iron giant represents body and hogarth represents heart or some some kind of split like that yeah i would also add that there's the dimension of hogarth's biological father that plays into the iron giant being a reflection of hogarth's in interiority a little bit in his in in interior of his internal life in that there's the helmet there's the the fighter pilot helmet which I think is supposed to be his father's fighter pilot helmet because you see him carrying it in the picture that Hogarth has by his bed of his father. And once Kent comes into the home and sets up as this negative, toxic, potentially wrong father figure, Hogarth protects himself by putting on his actual father's hat and staring him down. They have that wonderful scene where they stare each other down all night until they each fall asleep, which is basically straight out of Gilgamesh. <laughs> and uh, oh, Not exactly, but a little bit here and there. They strive, they strive with the flesh. The spirit <laughs> and the flesh strive together. But the idea that Hogarth is trying out the idea of taking on the role of his father as being defined as the guy who fights and shoots and kills other guys because his father was a fighter pilot and you see him running around with his father's hat on shooting that little fake gun and then at the end of the movie you get the iron giant in a military context and the general has identified what the problem is and the iron giant kind of responds to the problem that's been identified by the general by sacrificing himself for for the great for the 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 preservation of the other people both his own you know compatriots and also the family back home so you can see a, a moment of hogarth's biological father manifest in the iron giant as he flies because, because you know his father was a pilot, right? And so he can he doesn't shoot; 
he flies. And so the sort of protective flyer dimension of the absent father versus the helmet wearing defensive and aggressive version of the absent father. We're not trying to find out which one this guy really was because we don't know him. And I don't think Hogarth knows him either. But Hogarth is trying to figure out which dimension of this he wants to accept. It's almost as if he's also getting to choose his own mystery. That fourth quadrant that you're talking about, because the part of Hogarth that he doesn't know and that nobody else knows is this relationship with his dead father that is mysterious. Nobody quite has it figured out. Uh, and and I think that uh, that's interesting to see that coming out at the end with the Iron Giant flying off into the sky as both a manifestation of what the kid wants and the kid admires, but also a reflection of kind of what the kid thinks an adult should do in that kind of situation. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, but- I love that we can extrapolate so much from the father just by the photo and yeah. then the accoutrements that he left behind, right? And as you're talking that through, I just realized, oh, wait a minute. Uh, the oversized jacket that he wears at the beginning to go investigate um, what's going on out there is his father's. Yes. Right? It's clearly, yeah. it's clearly a flight jacket, right? The other thing I wanted to throw out there, and I'm like clearly getting into uh, fan fiction territory here, is that because this movie takes place in 1957, right, uh, coinciding with the Sputnik satellite, I think it's safe to assume that his father died in the Korean War. Right. Mm. 1950 to 1953. Um, right. And so um, that's why I identify with this movie is because yeah. the Korean War is tangentially associated with it. The Forgotten War and his father's forgotten. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's kind of that's I mean, I, I laugh and smile because it's fun to make realizations. But then I realize this is a sad and horrible realization to make uh, a lot of horrible because it's what the story is about. You got to be able to handle the subject matter. And I think they do a good job of softening it up for us. Well, yeah. yeah I mean, so uh, where, where does the sorry, you go ahead, Mark. No, I was about to take us in a different direction. Um, well, I, I, I kind of want to, I kind of want to finish this because I feel like the, sure. the, the kind of the battle over masculinity and and what it is is kind of at the spiritual heart of of this film. And uh, and you know, I don't know. I I've just for all the other people I was watching with, I figured I I would put the movie on pause when the Iron Giant says, "I am not a gun," so that everyone else in my apartment could go cry for five minutes. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Like uh and that like um you know cuz like obviously that would have no uh resonance emotional resonance with any american man you know <laughs> at, at all uh who has struggled with the you know uh the issue of what sort of masculinity means and like the idea you know the idea of being a a protector without being an intruder right or the idea of being a, a of of sort of being able to bring strength to bear right in service of the community in a way that's not sort of disruptive to the to the community and what the you know, or or you know, sort of choosing to uh, choosing to stand down in um, the Iron Giant type way. Like that's that's a I, I don't know. I feel like that's that's a powerful moment, and that's like contrast that with uh, uh, with I've got I want to call him Shooter because it's it's a it's appropriate. Like uh, you know, Agent Kent, man, yeah, Agent Kent Mansley uh, wants to Mansley up and just fire the just fire the missile, just blow. Just blow everything up. I feel like to a certain extent there's a there's a confusion of genre because like the army, the you know puffed up military brass and some some of that stuff are a little bit in a farce, um, especially because the the uh, Iron Giant seems not uh, particularly vulnerable to conventional weaponry, uh, and and. 
and yet Mansley is re- the sort. There, there is a sort of confusion of what of what the stakes are. Is this like, uh, you know, is this a um, uh, what kind of atomic bomb is this? You know, is is this a uh, uh, Stanley Kubrick? You know, uh, Doctor Strangelove atomic bomb, or is this a failsafe uh, atomic bomb? You know that uh, it's not totally clear tonally or like stakes wise where what what genre we're in, and I think sometimes we're at a slightly inconsistent distance from from reality in this. But like he wants to shoot, he wants to fire, he wants to even when it's so clear uh, that a he's lost. And B, uh, it is counterproductive to it is damaging to the society to keep on raging, right? To keep on with the violence um, and and sort of shaman like, right? The Iron Giant kind of heals the rift between the worlds, right? Like heals the the uh, uh, the the big psychic wound caused by caused ultimately by absent fathers or by like a generation of fathers who didn't come home, uh, which is something that happened. I mean, it's not just American. It happens in a lot of countries after a big war. Uh, yeah. So I want to go back to uh, a point around the generative aspect of Dean versus the more destructive aspects of Kent. Um, and, you know, we talked about how he creates the art and that's, you know, a, a good model for masculinity, right? It's another type of strength. Um, that is uh, additive, that is positive to the community. Um, contrast that, by the way, with that Kent uh, gets fed the laxative and poops. That's the only <laughs> generative action that he does in this movie. <laughs> it's by taking dumps. And he does it a lot after he gets fed the laxative. And, and so if, if you ever have wondered whether how, whether how to think about the phrase toxic masculinity in terms of is the word toxic kind of helping to define what masculinity is or is it like a subset of masculinity uh, and that there is a non-toxic masculinity? I guess you could think of the the virulent and, and impressive pooping that Kent has to do in this movie as like proof that masculine that not all men are toxic because not all of them poop. Although I would say that also is proof that non-toxic masculinity he doesn't necessarily have to be lame because uh, Harry Connick Jr.'s guy totally rides his motorcycle without a helmet. So he's a total dude. Uh, and that's and he suppose he's put forward as a positive male role model. So <laughs> it's not like you have to be totally emasculated. You know, there are a lot of a lot of a lot of new. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And by the way, like a protective protective jacket and like boots and, and gloves. But uh, the um, a lot of New England states don't have helmet laws. Right. Like yeah. uh, I, I get, you know, Liffrey and Die. Am I right? <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, but he's yeah. So him is a beatnik, right? Like as a as a member of the counterculture uh, is interesting to me because I, I usually think of beatniks as a cadre. You know, I think you can't like beatnik. I, you can't beatnik alone. You know uh, that that uh, that that you. It's not just a. D- definition of of an identity in relationship to the larger culture it's a definition of identity in relation to a cultural in-group uh, a turtleneck wearing you know uh, black clad snapping uh spoken word po- you know poetry reciting in-group um and so he's he's almost less though he's kind of styled like a beatnik i think he's that's sort of meant to mark him as being not a square right like not part of the not part of the sort of um patriarchal, you know, national, um, country, uh, you know, duty kind of, uh, culture. Uh, it's, it's meant to mark him as, as sort of apart from that though. It's not really, he's not really 
countercultural. He is sustainable cultural, right? Like he's sort of healthy cultural. And the idea of the, the, uh, he's not just an artist. He's an artist in a junkyard and that, that like, uh, he takes things that are thrown away and sort of repurposes them, makes, makes use of them, finds new, finds new life for them and sort of out of destruction creates, uh, creates a kind of beauty, right? Um, it's it's a uh, uh, you I guess a, a writer and animator and director I guess a creative artist would like you know want this kind of person to be the moral hero of the story yeah. I suppose I feel like I feel like with this movie you can even swap out iron as a word and as a symbol and and say something more along the lines of created that that or form and some sort of abstract notion for things that are made or things that have form and in that like the iron giant is a creature of form that consumes form in order to in in, to, in order to sort of grow and exist and sustain itself it's sustained on notions of artifice and creation and and that an iron giant could also be called the created man <laughs> right. And, yeah. Uh, whereas, it, whereas Hogarth, whereas Hogarth is begotten, not made, one in being with his absent father. Right. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. That that Hogarth experiences himself biologically, but that he sees it reflected in the Iron Giant, the possibility of the created man that he might become, and uh, and and then that sense. The beatniks, the beatnik doesn't exist against the culture. The beatniks exist as a creator rather than a destroyer. And industry is and, and industry and craft are aligned with creation. This isn't a movie that's about how, you know, mothers are generative and fathers are destructive. This is a movie of which uh, uh, somebody who this is more like the Zen and the art of motorcycle maintenance, where you can be somebody working with machines and metal and still be uh, kind of engaged in, the, in a creative act that has a certain kind of uh, non slightly non gender normative aspect, but still a masculine aspect which I think is an interesting place for this to kind of comfortably locate itself in the gender discourse. I mean, let's face it. He's a beatnik in Maine, right? He's not in a compound. He's going to the diner. He's not that extreme. You know, like he has a soul patch, I guess. But if you were really that serious, he, he would have at least moved to Portland, probably instead of Rockport. <laughs> but uh, although maybe Rockport's supposed to be Portland. Uh, or whatever it is, Rockland. I don't even know. Some some fake fake. Oh, I was thinking. Know. I of course I had Portland, Oregon in my head when oh. you said that because <laughs> that's where they hit people go, right? Like, yeah. uh, but it wasn't. Uh, you need kind of a postness, right? Like you need post dash in order to be uh, to be contemporary Portland. Then it was like a what budding budding industrial town, or maybe like a gold rush thing or something. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. So as we're talking that through, it just occurred to me that the the Iron Giant, the big metal robot consuming metal in order to sustain himself is uh, a great commentary on uh, culture sort of consuming itself and then generating and sustaining itself. Oh, yeah, totally. Right. And, like and we also, talked about the E.T. The Terminator. Yeah. Yep. Go for it. Oh, also it. that, too. Yeah. The E.T. Yeah. Uh, reference, the Terminator 2 reference, um, all the Disney heritage of animation right um you can conceive of a studio warner brothers a giant consuming all of it and growing and creating something new from it not that it's derivative but it's new and it is certainly um uh, a product of what has come before it right so the ironness of the iron giant isn't a substance it's a phenomenon and it's the Mm -hmm. phenomenon of of creation begetting creation 
and which in this case is uh, rooted a little bit in in the artistic sense, in the sense of of trash and art is kind of in the eye of the beholder and trash kind of goes through the artist and becomes art. But also this idea of the cold war has its own kind of creation that begets creation. And the iron, in the sense of like, if you see an enemy and you build weapons to fight the enemy, then the enemy might also build weapons. And then your aggressiveness towards the enemy might in turn promote the enemy towards you. And then this whole way of thinking and being in the world persists and enlarges itself. The, uh, the giant, the, the iron becomes giant. Right. Uh, and, and so it's interesting that the Iron Giant is in both of these worlds. He's both in the sort of self-consuming, self-creating, growing notion of kind of both modern and postmodern tradition and, and and kind of appropriation and reinvention and, and kind of misreading. And he's also in the world of weapons and and wars and uh, enemies and and blocks you know that that build the world in the especially in the context of the sort of cold war uh, uh endeavor there's there's one image in the movie that i wanted to touch on that i really think hammers this point home in a really interesting way which is the the flashlight at the beginning of the movie you guys like this the iron giant is one of those movies that has long extended periods of time within the movie that don't appear to drive the main plot but when you sit back and watch it, actually symbolically relate to the plot in really interesting ways. And one of them is this really long sequence where Hogarth is walking through the woods with a flashlight. And thinking about it from an animation perspective, there's the background painting. And then there is the part of the painting that Hogarth is placing the beam of his flashlight on. And then that part of the background painting gets redrawn and, and made bright. And and so you got, I think this is a movie that's made by an animator and sort of stepping up to be the main auteur of it. The idea that the world has a kind of background, you could think of that as the fourth quadrant, the mysterious world that is unknown to me or to you. And that when you draw your attention to it, yes, it is you, you shine light on the world, but you also redraw it. You, you create a layer of the world that is the layer of your observation and experience, almost like a sort of, what is it, Baudrillardian and hyper-reality that's mapped onto the world, but maybe less cynically. This idea of what the world is that is based on your ability to see it and engage with it, uh, and that transforms it, that is sort of like the idea of how, you know, you watch – uh, Inuyasha. You write Inuyasha fan fiction. <laughs> I should even say, you watch, you read Twilight. You watch the Twilight. Someone reads Twilight makes the movie. You watch the Twilight movie. You write Twilight fan fiction. Someone else writes Twilight fan fiction. They become Fifty Shades of Grey. You watch Fifty Shades of Grey. It's all like looking at a dark place and shining a light on it that does not necessarily make it more clear and true to itself, but redraws it and, and kind of recreates it. The same thing in, in, through a different perspective or a different kind of intermediation kind of gets gets kind of redrawn, recreated, rebuilt. Uh, and, and that's kind of how the Iron Giant is both the Terminator and Goku and Superman and E.T., you know, and I'm sure lots of other, you know, he's the Rocketeer because he's got that little ridge down the middle of his head like the Rocketeer has. And he flies through the sky like the Rocketeer um, and what he lives in the barn. Yeah. I'm trying to think of who else lives in like Pete's Dragon. Right. Like he's he's all these things. Uh, seen and kind of rebuilt and enlarged uh, and reimagined. Sure. I mean, so, E.T. Yeah. shows up in a shed, right? Like it's, uh, yeah. which is like the urban barn or the suburban barn, you know? <laughs> that, like, uh, the the difference shed, between a know? barn and a shed, the only difference between a barn and a shed is how much you can charge to have a wedding there. Do <laughs> 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 I get married in my shed? <laughs> I, have a, I have a lovely barn. Oh, 
twenty thousand oh, dollars. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, plus, uh, yeah, plus, uh, get, you have to use our people for food and drink, and they have guaranteed minimums as well. Uh, the <laughs> Um, yeah, the the sort of the use of light in this film. It's also like just as an as an animated as an artifact. Like the combination of computer generated and hand drawn animation is very very cool. Um, it sort of creates it creates an otherworldly effect. And I'm thinking of like uh, the space stuff or the like the shimmering light on the water versus the more uh, kind of homey. Um, small town main stuff, you know, that, that like, uh, that the idea, the idea is that, you know, you, you are sort of catapulted into a world, into a computer animated world of adventure outside of the quotidian world of your, your, uh, uh, hand drawn, hand drawn home. Um, yeah. And, and, uh, and, and yeah. The burning question, what if Balto had a giant robot? (laughs) (laughs) It it, it kind of shatters that whole expectation of the world a little bit. Uh, anyway, sorry, I interrupted you. Well, no, uh, I'm not sure I was going anywhere. I also think like the, the, the presence of Bambi, um, the presence of Bambi in, in this movie, like is, uh, is interesting because like the shoot, it's actually, uh, a male deer, right. Who gets shot. It's a buck, a a stag with, um, with horns. Right. And so the, uh, or, or antlers, I, I, I don't know. I don't do, I don't do animals. I live in Los Angeles. Like, uh, like I've, I, I know like 20 breeds of purse dog. Uh, the, you are, if you're alienated from nature, Matt, unlike the people of Rockland, Maine, uh, who commune with nature, right? The Hogarth has the squirrel. Uh, there are, there are cows about, uh, it's, it's a very, there's, you see a pig truck driving by. And we also, of course, see the beautiful changing of the seasons, uh, from summer into fall, um, because notably this you know, movie takes place with Sputnik, which is October of 1957. That all feels really significant, right? Because um, it is both in contrast to the highly artificial nature of the Iron Giant, uh, and yet it provides a context for context for the Iron Giant's character growth, right? That really touching scene where he's uh, mourns, he grieves for the, the, the deer that was just killed. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, the, uh, yeah, in the sort of the fifties, like a sort of notional, yeah, in the sort of notional fifties, right? Like the, the, the deer is interesting, right? Like, because the deer, the deer in Bambi means, means you're alone, right? Uh, but the deer in, and the Iron Giant means that you have the capacity to deprive others of life, right? Like it's it's about because because it's not a it's not a deer on deer uh, perspective on the world, you know. <laughs> I've had it with deer on deer violence, <laughs> but the the you know, but like it's not the, the Lion King is what you're saying. Yeah, exactly. The, the Lion King is lion on lion, but Bambi is man on Bambi. Is is man on Bambi from the point of view of Bambi, right? Yeah. And this is man on Bambi from the point of view of this is man on Bambi's father uh right absent father not absent mother from the point of view of uh of a littler man you know who is wondering <laughs> who is wondering what it means um who's wondering what it means to be a man and this is like actually by the way when we talk sometimes about the anxiety of influence Harold Bloom's theory of like poetic uh, reinterpretation and strong misreading right like this is strong misreading of uh 
of Bambi, right? Like the idea that like, oh, we sort of, we just sort of recap the story of Bambi, that the proper use of Bambi is to recap the story and lessons of Bambi is, um, you know, is a not not a really a misreading, but the strong misreading is like here here is Bambi's sort of slant. Here is like another take on uh, on this story that is useful to um, kind of advancing the art of the or that that is useful to kind of a new kind of of um, animated animated film. Yeah, like in Bambi, the main thing you see of man is his works, the fire and the gunshot. You hear the gunshot and the idea that man could exist with or without guns by choice is not present in the movie Bambi. It's man has come to the forest, not man with gun has come to the forest. Mm -hmm. It is essential to the aspect of man as understood by the deer that he carries guns. And so when Hogarth encounters Bambi and is like, well, guns are bad because guns are how Bambi ends up alone. That's definitely a very different idea of this sort of teleology of uh, predation, right? Like, like what is it? What is the purpose of an animal that is capable of killing another animal? Uh, it is not to make the decision of whether to kill or not. It is to be present or absent, right? Like we either either man is here or man is not here. Uh, as, as, right. and, yeah, and, yeah. So, so, yeah. so, what you're saying is, in Bambi, uh, guns don't kill Bambi; people kill Bambi. Yeah. Where, whereas in, uh, whereas in Iron Giant, people don't kill Bambi; guns kill Bambi. Yeah. Which is interesting that Iron Giant takes place in Maine. Now that I think about it, because Maine is at least partially defined by being in the places that it is settled, it is very settled, and in the places where it is not settled, it is very not settled. Yeah, and, and like because that's sort of what makes it a, attractive to Stephen King too. I think other than just having lived there and experienced it, but that you can have a New England town, which is a you know tradition of humanistic organization of the natural world that has persisted for hundreds of years with a great degree of stubbornness uh, in the landscape of a giant primeval, you know, supposedly primeval forest, right? Putting aside the sort of whole idea of a kind of terraforming by the natives who were here be before they you know, were genocided and all this other stuff. But this idea of the experience of the dark woods of Maine. Uh, well, actually, I would even posit to think there was never a time where a lot of people, there has never been a time where a lot of people lived in Maine. I don't yeah. think ever in the history of the human race. I think it's safe to say that even when the natives lived here before the Europeans lived here, it was still very sparsely populated. Uh, it's just very cold, right? Like, but I guess they live in other places too. But it's like there's always been the woods. And so you have the choice of whether you want to kind of encounter and conflict with other people. You don't have to. Uh, you don't have to live in the context of human the human society around you. Even you're not like like if the Iron Giant goes to New York, like that's a very different movie where the Iron Giant has to learn to live like a person. You know, it's like the Iron Giant would have to figure out how to shrink himself, how to ride the subway. Uh, I mean, what I'm basically how to split the cable yeah. bill with his roommates. Exactly, yeah. exactly. This, this is the sequel, guys. I, it seemed like they set this movie up for a sequel. Iron, Iron Giant, New York. Iron, Iron Giant Two: Lost in New York. Yeah, uh, but it never happened. Well, there's always hope, I suppose. They're bringing everything back these days. Well, I suppose um, all that is to say, all that is to say, yeah, he meets a uh, he meets a, a businessman who becomes the president of the United States. Uh, <laughs> oh, oh no! 
I'm just saying so, there are two kinds of stories in the world, it and Crocodile Dundee, and that's it. <laughs> or Crocodile Dundee and Crocodile Dundee 2. There's only two kinds of stories. It's either man versus the outback or man versus man. Yeah, I would definitely <laughs> I would definitely read that overthinking it article. All right, All right. before before we end, let's talk about the the ending of of the movie. I uh I think Pete you and I might line up on different sides of this. I think it pulls its punch. Uh I think the idea that the Iron Giant is gone has sacrificed himself and and that uh it's gone that that loss is real it's material and it's uh irreversible um like death is an important lesson um that an important le- lesson that hogarth learns and an important thing that kind of establishes the stakes uh of the movie but i you know i don't want to i don't want to give short shrift to to your opinion because i think you feel very very differently about the the end of this movie especially the final shot of uh the iron giant's head up in the fortress of solitude uh post post supermanning um where where he super where he supermans that snow and oh god <laughs> and he <laughs> <laughs> no, you. Let me see that Robocop. Uh, so, that's, that's, yes, let's, let's call the podcast episode Let Me See That Robocop. No, uh, um, I love the ending of The Iron Giant. I think it really elevates the movie. I consider it to be one of the best endings to a movie. Oh, great. Well, tell, tell, tell me why, tell me why how, how it makes sense, because I'm, I'm very eager to have my, my gaze lifted here. So, well, okay. So, first of all, there's the whole notion that Hogarth believes in the existence of the soul, which is important. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. Right. Because Hogarth believes in the existence of the soul and the iron, he believes that the iron giant has to have a soul because the iron giant is good, which is a really loaded philosophical statement, right? That is like, well, because you are good, this is, it's something that's like straight out of a platonic dialogue. The idea that if you are good, then you are associated with the form of goodness. And since forms, precede the manifestations of the forms in the physical world and forms are eternal therein whatever that is good necessarily about you has to be eternal and of course we all know that souls last forever and, and are eternal because we are live in the world of plato right and like uh, and like this is the way that things work then the goodness of the iron giant to the extent that it's realized has to be reflective of some sort of underlying form uh that that is itself sort of uh in its very in its own measure perfect and eternal in its respect now and it, it also is funny because the iron giant is a, is a creature of form and design uh and and form and kind of redesign and so the notion that the iron giant is almost kind of fractal in that it has elements of form that are repeated and consumed and reproduced and and and, cre- and sort of create this larger macro being based every little part of the iron giant has a little beacon on it that has its this sort of uh frequency and purpose associated with it which is to create the iron giant and so you have to think that the idea of and form of the iron giant is present in every piece that has the beacon in sort of the same way that you might think if you were kind of oversimplifying things that you as a full person are manifest in your dna but to even a greater degree because the way the dna works is you know it tells you your body how to build itself but what it ends up building is, you know, like a Persian rug informed by the mistakes and, and happenstance that occur along the way. Right? Like it's the, the the errors get worked into the pattern. And, uh, you know, so you aren't just your genetics. You're the genetics plus everything that sort of happened to you as you were growing. Uh, but the Iron Giant is, is much more has a sort of antecedent design 
it seems to be mutable based on the Iron Giant's experience, but it arrives at this goodness that has this eternal quality that's present in every part of the Iron Giant and that calls out to the pieces to reunite themselves. And so I, I guess I would posit to Mark when the Iron Giant gets blown up by the nuclear bomb up in the sky, you know, what do we see? Because to me, we see something very specific. But I, I want to know if you see the thing that I see at the end of this, at, at this I, moment. I think we see a star in the sky. Yeah. And what star is it? What star is it? Yeah. Oh, I think oh, it's a very like, specific star a specific, that we see what, in the sky. What? The, the, the North Star? No, I think the it's the Star of Bethlehem. The Star of Bethlehem. Oh, yeah. wow. So when the, yeah. Uh. And in fact, I think, I think it's really very clearly the Star of Bethlehem. Uh, in the sense that it's cross-shaped and it has the circle around it and has the kind of compass rose. Like, if you look, it, I think it's a wow. stylized star that you see in nativity, right? So, hey, here's a creature that sacrifices itself for everybody, to save everybody. And it, and also, this is the story of a boy that's sort of becoming a man and taking on the idea that this creature has come to internalize and, and create as good, right? Both by understanding it, by living in the world and becoming part of the world, and also by kind of having this sort of transformative act where it becomes kind of larger than the world. So it's a birth-death moment where we see at the moment of the Iron Giant's crucifixion, we see the Star of Bethlehem that heralds the Iron Giant's birth, right, which is shining in the sky. And of course, and I know this is kind of crazy to think of it in terms of like biblical hermeneutics and stuff, but I think that's kind of the level on which, at least one level in which this is operating. And then, of course, the star is in the sky. And then and then from the star, we have a little bit of talking and then we go out into the snow and what's happening, but we see like, oh, well, we go to Hogarth, he has a screw, right? <laughs> yeah, the screw. The screw yeah. creates life. <laughs> there, there, you know, draw your own conclusions from that, that when Hogarth becomes an adolescent, he gains the power of the screw, which can create life. But <laughs> And Hogarth kind of like lets the screw drop heavy between his legs. Oh, my God. This, this, it's, it's screwing is a beautiful – it's a natural and beautiful process. It is. And, and the opening of the, of the eyes of the birth that comes from it is also a beautiful process. But the idea that the screw goes on this pilgrimage and then you see like the leg, the big leg on its pilgrimage and you realize all of the parts of the iron giant are on this pilgrimage i'm not saying the iron giant is jesus <laughs> i'm saying that like we are bringing together because i'm saying that the about, iron giant is bigger than jesus no only, <laughs> only in terms of height <laughs> in terms of height and like girth perhaps but like but the point being that like the iron giant a, is a, a kind of meta cultural meta mythological symbol that is feeding off of and reproducing all sorts of different sorts of ideas of what human beings and particularly men, you know, this is kind of a boy man movie, which is unfortunate that it doesn't go more into the lives of the women involved. And, and I'm sure it speaks to, I would love to hear the perspective of a woman on this movie, but that, let's put that aside for a second. It's putting out this idea of like all of the things that a person could be or should be. And in, as it proceeds towards its ending, it needs to reach some sort of conclusion, maybe even an apotheosis being like the process by which a sort of human human sort of form or notion transcends into a divine sort of form or notion. And we do this by incorporating uh, Christian iconography and 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 the journey of the pieces of the Iron Giant to the head of the Iron Giant is uh, communicated as a sort of pilgrimage of the wise men to the star and also of sort of all the people of the world towards the goodness. 
And then the idea that like it's a party, there's like mounting music and like everybody's coming. And 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 it's it's you know what? You know what? War. So the, the Iron Giant is a movie which has the specter of war hanging over it. And at the end, it ends one of those wars. It ends one of the biggest wars that's going on right now. It ends the war on Christmas. <laughs> it does this because the Iron Giant's head is both the idea of kind of goodness and sacrifice and that is sort of at the heart of a Christian tradition. And he's also the North Pole and Santa Claus with all the toys <laughs> and the robots because he's got the North Pole on his head. Right. And so he's at the top of the world. And, and so all this is and all of the people are coming together around this notion. And so. So what I see, so to back away from all the symbolism, because I'm not seeing that's what it is. What it is, is is the robot is pulling itself together from its pieces from all over the world, because at some point in the future, the robot's going to come back. Uh, but, but I think symbolically what it is, is that the idea of the robot is an idea that's kind of worked into our culture. Like the goodness that is in the Iron Giant is in people at large as one of the dynamics or one sort of cluster of dynamics within which people interact with each other. There's the cluster of dynamics of like death and war, not death, because as Kogar, this is a children's movie in which a child lectures another child about how death is not bad. This is a very serious children's movie, right? Like dying isn't bad, killing is bad. And it's like, you're not going to get that from freaking like uh, the emperor's new groove. <laughs> like, uh, <laughs> But at any rate, maybe you do. I haven't seen it in a long time. But the point being that uh, the hope that the Iron Giant might be reconstituted, I don't necessarily read as the the feeling that the Iron Giant didn't actually die is the primary source of relief. On the surface, sure. But I think the main idea of it is that the goodness that the Iron Giant arrived at at the moment of his death is not lost at his death, but exists in the world and kind of issues a call out to the world for everybody to attend to and gather around. And that were we all to gather around the idea of the goodness that is the form and the beacon of the Iron Giant, we would enjoy a a Hajj, a, a, uh, a Christmas, a nativity, you know, a resurrection, right? Uh, I mean, the, we could go across all of the different pilgrimages, you know, like a like a Passover to the promised land, right? Like uh, like an exodus, right? Like there's a there's a movement of people toward a way that things ought to be. And in that the Iron Giant is sort of combining all these different traditions together. The moment where the Iron Giant kind of like opens his eyes and smiles at the end of the movie is this sort of like idea like we could do this. This could be a thing that people could do. And and like and it, and it comes full circle with Sputnik being shot up into the into the orbit, which is like this is a question, which is that we have the capacity in the creation in our ability to create. We have now posed the question to the whole world in a way that no one can deny that human creation could either destroy all of us or bring us all into a new era of of prosperity and cooperation. That's what Sputnik is. It is the edge of the knife between annihilation and utopia. Now, granted, the truth of the matter is it's probably not going to break all that strong one way or the other, but like the world could end or the world could start when Sputnik goes into space. And at the end of the movie, the Iron Giant's head as the sort of conclusion and the kind of normativization of the question of Sputnik, the answer to the question of Sputnik is we could be, we could use this technology as a way to, to come together. And as and we could pursue these sort of shared values of of protection and strength without uh, without aggression. Right. And and sacrifice and craft 
you know, and 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 proving yourself and becoming yourself. These could all be things that we could call out as our own beacons to the whole world, uh, because maybe we're all sort of like legs and arms of the Iron Giant and ourselves have our beacons that we could ring out and form a sort of Voltron. Uh, so, yeah, I guess it's Jesus, Santa Claus and Voltron all at the end. <laughs> Yeah, and if, and if I were to have dinner with three people, I mean that's always the answer. I would <laughs> All right, let's leave it. Let's leave our uh, our Iron Giant podcast there. Thank you very much for listening, and thanks very much to Pete and Mark for uh, talking with me about the Iron Giant on the episode. We want to know what you think. Uh, leave a comment in the show notes for this podcast you can uh, click on through to the other side and see uh, see what we are all talking about we'll be back next week with more overthinking it podcast till then visit us on the web at overthinkingit.com where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it, it probably, probably doesn't, doesn't deserve, deserve. So my dark reading of the ending is that the Iron Giant again has amnesia and wakes <laughs> up and then visits another town and has to learn the lessons all, all over again. And then uh, creates another arm standoff and has to <laughs> prevent another nuclear bomb from going off. And it's just he's having over and over again. And this is the uh, sad existence he has been doomed to. So oh, wow. you're imagining you're imagining that when the Iron Giant at the end says Superman, he's actually Zack Snyder, is what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs>